welcome back to Ashburton. We're uh, about ready to start now. It's political commentary. With Professor Jennifer Curtin this morning. Kia ora, Jennifer. How are you today? Kia ora, I'm good, thank you. A little bit wet. A little bit wet. Good. Yeah, there's a bit of a damp one out there today. Uh, we've got some, some big ones to get stuck into. Let's start with COP27, which has just wrapped up in, in Egypt. And it's been a bit of a, I guess, a disappointing one. There was a lot of hope and expectation, um, obviously, on every COP that happens. But there was a lot of pressure on this one to be, uh, you know, fixing some pretty significant issues quite immediately. And that doesn't seem to have happened. But what, what's been your observation from what we've seen come out of Egypt. Yeah, I think I think there is a lot of disappointment because, you know, the intensity of this this issue is is really immediate, right? And mm. um there were some some big leaders there, but there were also some countries didn't send their prime ministers. So so even before it got started it, there wasn't a clear signal that you know, post Glasgow, everybody was getting the same level of um, sense of urgency that, that the big leaders all needed to be there, not just some, right? Mm. But since it's really what's come out is that I, I suppose it's big for us and what has implications for New Zealand. And if we end up with a, a different government next time around, is the decision not to um, do any more than reaffirm 1.5, but no sort of strong statement on reduction of fossil fuels. And I think, you know, this is this is the big the big problem. So they reaffirmed the goal of keeping the global warming to one point five degrees above um, pre industrial levels, but they really wanted to get something stronger on uh, some kind of proposal and commitment to phasing out all fossil fuels, mm-hmm. like not just coal. And and that just didn't happen. So there was a win there was a win around the loss and damage fund for developing countries that haven't contributed to the levels of um, greenhouse gases that we have, but are the most affected by climate change and have the least amount of resources to be able to deal with the catastrophe. So one win, but but probably wanted a lot more wins than that. Mm, yeah, it, it's been a it's been a tense one to watch for sure, and I think the implications of this will probably uh, see see some more analysis over the coming weeks. But shall we talk about something maybe a little bit more positive this morning? Uh, and that's uh, the very sort of exciting and. Um, I guess, landmark uh, ruling from the New Zealand Supreme Court around discriminatory uh, parts of our law and voting ages. Now, what does this actually all mean? Because I feel like there's been perhaps different interpretations of what this means, but what what has the Supreme Court actually said this week? And what does that potentially mean for our voting age in Aotearoa? Right. So what the supreme so so this fabulous group called Make It Sixteen had be has been pushing this case through the lower courts, um, took it to the Supreme Court, um, and the Supreme Court ruled in favour of them, arguing that preventing sixteen and seventeen year olds from voting is what's called unjustifiable discrimination that is therefore inconsistent with the Bill of Rights Act. Now, what happened in around May this year is a new piece of legislation passed through the House that um, is an amendment to the Bill of Rights Act, which has got this declaration of inconsistency component to it. So if the Supreme Court 
defines an inconsistency and declares that there's an inconsistency mm. in terms of the Bill of Rights and, and, and human rights. So those are the, you know, if there have been identified any limits on rights in an act, that triggers a process um, in Parliament and the executive. So then they must respond. They must say what they are going to do and it usually will have to go to some kind of select committee for consideration and then the government would have to respond and say what are they going to do about it and so in our case what we saw was the Prime Minister um, jumped ahead of all of that and just said we'll introduce you know we'll introduce a bill um, that will lower the voting age to 16. So that is a win the problem is is that we need a super majority to get that bill across and National and Act have already said that they won't support it and it and it can't go to a referendum and it shouldn't because those most impacted by this change won't get to vote in that mm. referendum, right? Yes. And and apparently only 66 or 78 percent of the pop, you know, like that disagree with the granting rights to people who don't currently have those rights. So it's um it is a very symbolically powerful win. Um, how we make it substantive. It's going to be the interesting one. What do you think it is going to take to get this across the line? Because as you say, uh, National and Act have, have said they're not going to support it, but what do you think would be uh, required for them to perhaps change their position on that? Well, I'm not I'm not sure they're going to change their position anytime soon because, because what we're hearing is two arguments against it. One is, they're really upset by judicial activism. This is what they call it, judicial activism. We see this in other Westminster countries, but, you know, this is this is what the Supreme Court decided. Um, but also they, they've, they're they arguing that 16 and 17-year-olds um, are two to one are more likely to vote centre-left. Um, people mostly talking about Labour and Greens, but really we should think about the Māori Party here too, you know, that might be beneficiaries because if this were changed because the age structure so 33.7 percent of Māori are aged less than 15 um, mm. a couple of years ago and only 18 percent of non-Māori so this is really you know enfranchisement of, of Māori youth as well what's really important but I think one solution there are two ways forward I think we continue to be active in this space so advocating for this recognizing that internationally there are nine countries and lots of subnational level governments that already allow 16-year-olds. And we have evidence to say that this is good for democracy and that young people do turn out, particularly when they care about you know, significant issues that are on the agenda. Mm. But the second option is that the government to that, you know, like puts this forward to change the rules on local government mm -hmm. because they only need a minimum. They don't need a super majority. So it just needs to pass. And then voting age for local government can turn to, can become 16. And then we can sort of build some civic seed into the process. And then, you know, and then that means that young people can, you know, have a voice at the local level and sh demonstrate to the parties that aren't so sure about this, um, that it's actually really valuable for democracy. Absolutely. Well, it's an exciting, it's certainly an exciting uh, week for that campaign. Let's talk very briefly about the National Party before we let you go, Jennifer. Uh, they've, they've been in the news this week and not necessarily in a positive light. Their uh, announcements around 
youth justice policies that they would bring in have been pretty widely criticised by sector experts and by the opposition and, and by the general public too. There's not been a lot of positive response to their uh, suggestions, particularly around the age range of this uh, category of serious youth offenders that they would like to introduce. 10 to 17 years old uh, with things like electronic monitoring for folks as young as 10 and this introduction of potential military boot camps uh, for people as young as 15. So it's been a bit of an archaic week for the National Party. What's your read on this? Well, it's really really disappointing you know we we signed up to the international convention on the rights of the child children don't have a voice in the political system they're kind of going after people that that can't speak for themselves um there will be whole groups that will be additionally disadvantaged by this um law and order is a real um one of those um policy issues that parties go to 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 sort of galvanise people around fear campaigns mm-hmm. rather than being inclusive, and and usually suggests that they're devoid of substantive policy options in other areas that actually, you know, would would be more positive and more benefit beneficiary. You know, like so mm-hmm. this 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 really kind of consolidates a very they're positioning themselves perhaps to try and get votes from the other small right parties that might be ultra-conservative. Um, it's really uh, very, very conservative. So it's not a centre position at all. So, uh, you know, and they're responding to this sort of broader crime issue. But to focus on children as young as 10 and and to at the same time not be giving in on or being, you know, allowing us to, to enfranchise 16, 17-year-olds, mm-hmm. 17-year-olds is really like a retrograde step, I would say. Do you think it's going to wash with the public at all? Do you think people are going to get on board with this type of policy? Will it actually win them any votes? I think it'll consolidate some of their base. I can't see how they are going to win back the wavering centre that went to Labour in the COVID election and are looking to come back to National. I think we shouldn't underestimate the fact that the National Party is a broad church and that there is a lot of small L liberal voters that sit in there and they will be concerned about this, I imagine. Mm. Well, thank you very much for your time this morning, Professor Jennifer Curtin. It's always great to have you on the show. Uh, enjoy the rest of your rainy Thursday and we'll talk to you in a couple mm-hmm. of weeks. Kia ora. Kia ora. You just heard a bit of political commentary. Thank you.